Welcome to Unbreakable Spirit, stories of inspiring and thriving with Jennifer Seven, co-author of a book that is part of the Sisterhood Folios, a number one international bestseller. This is a podcast about real women who've overcome tremendous obstacles and come out on the other side to thrive. Whether their hardships were financial, relational, or health, these women dug deep and found the light out of the dark to rise from the ashes, to find the ability to forgive, to love, and to live an authentic, joyful life. Now, here is your host, Jennifer Seven. Welcome, Unbreakable Spirit listeners, to episode 23. Well, as always, I have the most amazing guests and This one is really special. I have Nancy McKay here with me, and Nancy has a really interesting story. Nancy has been sober since March of 2009. She is also an ovarian cancer survivor, and she's a life and equus coach who helps women stop overdrinking. She's the founder of Amazing Outlook Coaching, and she works with women virtually and, and I think this is super cool, and I wish I lived near you, she works with the help of horses to uncover the limiting beliefs and behaviors that are keeping you stuck in the muck. Nancy is a contributing author to three multi-author books. She has a chapter called The Intersection of Desperation and Grace, and that was published in Ready to Fly Volume 3 in 2020. And I'll list all this in the show notes for you listeners. In 2021, she wrote The Gifts of Adversity, and she had a contribution to the international bestseller Phoenix Rising, Powerful Women Who Rose from the Ashes to Claim Their Place. And I think every woman that we've had on Unbreakable Spirit is a phoenix rising from the ashes. And I think many of our listeners are in that place where they are trying to rise from the ashes. So that is a, I I love that title. And then lastly, she contributed your inner wisdom to another international bestseller, Corporate Dropouts from Employee to Entrepreneur. And all three of these capture Nancy's inspiring story of recovery and creating a whole new life after cancer. Welcome, Nancy. I'm so happy to have you here today. Oh, thank you so much, Jennifer. It's great to be here. Yeah, awesome. So let's just dive in. I want to hear your story. Let's go back in time and and start sharing wherever you want to start sharing. Okay. Well, I was raised in an alcoholic household. That's probably, that's going way back because I have turned 65 this year. But it's, it's an important part of my story because I grew up learning how to walk on eggshells. Mm. and never knowing really what I was going to find. I didn't know how to, how to navigate life very well because things were always kind of unbalanced. Um, Uncertain. Uncertain. You never knew. You never knew you were walking. And was this both your parents? Well, my dad was the alcoholic. My mom drank a lot in order to tolerate his drinking. Mm-hmm. So I don't think she was really clinically uh, an alcoholic, but she certainly abused alcohol. So, okay. um, and, and on the other hand, I had a great, took great vacations and grew up learning to water ski and figure skate and snow ski. And from the outside, it looked fabulous. But, and that can be very confusing, right? Yeah, right. So you want to make sure that 
things looked good from the outside mm-hmm. and you didn't talk about what was going on on the inside. And it was just, it was, um, it was paradox. Yeah. <laughs> So at any rate, because I grew up in this alcoholic household, I really didn't think that, once again, it was kind of a paradox. I didn't think there was anything wrong with alcohol, and yet I didn't like what it did to people. And then I started drinking in high school with all my friends. And because of the feeling of enoughness that I got from it, it it made me look at the positive side of alcohol and not the negative side. So it gave you a way to fit in to a certain group. Exactly. Exactly. And so then while I certainly didn't abuse alcohol, well, I did abuse it when I was younger, but I didn't, I didn't become alcoholic until I was 50 probably, but I certainly abused it up until that point. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting because I didn't want to go there, but I did went there (laughs) because you can't expect to drink an addictive substance and not become addicted necessarily. It's, it's one of those things where some people do become addicted and some people don't. Yeah. Is it chemistry? Is it like a chemical thing? I think it must be. I think it's, I think there's a lot of things that point to it. Genealogy is one of them. And I come from a long line of alcoholics. So I think that was part of it. And I think that, I think that it was meant to be a part of my journey. I think it's something that I needed to experience probably on a soul level or something like that. So yeah. Can you just take a second and kind of explain the difference between abusing and being addicted? Sure. And I can, I can talk about this primarily from a personal standpoint. And, uh, and I've done a fair amount of research on it. So when you're abusing alcohol, it gives you some relief. It, let me, let me back up a bit. So there's a, there's a fine line. It's a very fine line, I think, between addiction and over drinking or abusing a substance. So when you begin to have problems, the, the, that's when the addiction has come into play, right? It's kind of when, when alcohol becomes a problem is when your life starts to go sideways. Right. So perhaps you get a DWI or right. you don't pay your bills or something right. you know, dysfunctional. Shit starts to hit the fan. Yeah, shit starts to hit the fan. <laughs> so for me, I had had a few of those types of things. I never got, you know, I've never gotten a DUI. I've never gotten into a car accident because of never been pulled over for anything like that. Never lost a job, but at the point where I was drinking alcoholically, I was my own boss. So I was a little more forgiving than maybe a real boss would have been. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I didn't have any of the consequences. What I was doing was I was drinking to stop the pain. 
So my father had committed suicide when I was 50. And then I, that ramped up my drinking and I eventually tried to kill myself at 52. And that's what ended my drinking. Oh my goodness. So for two years, I was intentionally drinking to ease to numb yourself, myself. Right. And, and it can go from a, an abuse over drinking kind of abusive stage to an addiction pretty quickly. And a lot of people can become addicted really quickly when they start drinking. I'm sure that I went to high school with a few alcoholics. It can hit you quick or can draw it out like I did and be kind of a weekend warrior type drinker, Mm -hmm. maintain normalcy during the week, you know, and then Friday night rolls around and all hell breaks loose. Yeah. So, but for me, it became not only was I drinking daily, but it was becoming unpredictable. So it, it took different amounts for me to get the same effect. Sometimes I could drink a lot and barely get a buzz. And other times I could have one glass of wine and I'd be kind of slurring my words and having a tough time. So the, that became unpredictable. I couldn't tell you how I was going to react to it before I had that first drink. That's really interesting. Yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons why a lot of people have these problems, these consequences is because there's that unpredictable element in there that they have a couple, they get behind the wheel and they think they're fine because last week or yesterday when they had a couple, they didn't have a problem, but today they did it becomes a crapshoot. Yeah. Because I, in my mind, I've always thought, well, you build up a tolerance, you know, and then you can necessarily. So that's brilliant. That is really interesting. Yeah. So can can we go back to your childhood for just a second? Sure. So your dad being the alcoholic. So what was he like growing up with? He, he certainly wasn't a mean drunk by any stretch. Okay. So no abuse and the, no, no. not that, not that type of situation. Not that type of situation. He was just, I guess, unpleasant would be the most, and, and that's not very descriptive. So I apologize, but it's like, well, I was brought up that children should be seen and not heard basically. Mm-hmm. And that I always got the feeling, I mean, I was never told your opinion doesn't matter, or I don't care how you think about this or how you feel about it for that matter. But, but I always had that feeling that, that I wasn't important enough to take into consideration for my behavior, his behavior. So my parents knew because I wear my heart on my sleeve that I was not happy about their drinking that it, it embarrassed me in front of my friends. It, it was very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter. <laughs> that didn't matter. Mm-hmm. And so I got that message real clear that it felt like I didn't matter. Not that not, not just my feelings didn't matter, but that I didn't really matter. 
And so, and that was just kind of an undercurrent. It wasn't, it wasn't explicit. It wasn't discussed. It was just like the tone of the household. And it was just that you're not enough reason for me to give this up. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, or it's, it's your problem, not theirs. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I can see how, in a way, when you started to drink in high school, part of it kind of been like, well, why not? Why not? Yeah, exactly. Nobody, right? Nobody yeah. Cares. Yeah. So why not? If you can't f- beat them, join them, right? Yep. yep. Yeah. Okay. So I kind of took us backwards, but just oh, no, keep that- going with your story. <laughs> <laughs> so when I shifted into really alcoholic drinking and, and I was starting to feel the effects of, so not only was I hung over every day, but I started developing the shakes and, oh. you know, it, it hadn't gotten to the point where I needed to drink in the morning in order to function, but it probably, that probably was on the horizon. Would have so, so literally physically it would start, you start shaking and, and you had to have a drink to stop the shakes. Well, I didn't, I mean, I would have the shakes, but I didn't drink in order to stop them. I would just suffer through them. Okay. Okay. I mean, it got to the point where I would be drawing on my eyeliner in the morning and my hands were shaking. Oh, okay. It's hard to put on my mascara because it would end up all over. Right, right. So that sort of thing. And I could disguise it enough during the day. And of course, like I said, I was self-employed. So I was not having to function in front of other people. Mm-hmm. So, and you were functioning enough. And I was to... functioning enough. Yeah, I yeah. was, I was still pretty high functioning. So mm-hmm. getting by. And then my husband and I went out for happy hour with some friends and I had a few glasses of wine and here's the unpredictable part. I stood up to go home. I'd had a couple, or I'd had a cup of clam chowder and I had things in my stomach, but I got up and started walking away from the bar and I was stumbling a bit and I stumbled kind of out the door. And when we got home, I said, damn it, we should have stopped and gotten a bottle of wine. We're all out of wine. And my husband said, well, I think you've had enough. Yeah. And that sent me into uh, a mild rage. Because he, he was in a way, chastising you, you've had enough. Yeah. And uh, so I marched myself down to the bedroom and slammed the door and started having an argument without him being in the room. (laughs) 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 Yeah. uh, Don't tell me what to do. Right. (laughs) Exactly. And then that morphed into a pity party. Mm hmm. And then that morphed into everybody would be better off without me. Oh, no. And so I got his handgun out of the nightstand. Wow. And I put it to my head and it wouldn't fire. And so I lowered the gun and I I was perplexed. I, I couldn't understand why it wasn't firing. And just to show you how unclearly I was thinking, I almost called my husband into the room to help me figure out how to work. How to, oh, oh my gosh. And then it dawned on me, oh, the safety must be on. 
Mm-hmm. So I figured out how to release the safety and the gun immediately fired. <gasps> oh my God. And the only thing that got shot was an innocent pillow on the bed. Thank God. Yeah. And so. Did that absolutely shock you oh, that, yeah. that it, it went off? Yeah. It, it scared me sober. Um, okay. Okay. I was wondering. Absolutely. I think at, I was in, well, I was in a, an alcoholic fog and that got my attention real quick. My husband came running, grabbed the gun out of my hand and, uh, hit it. (laughs) And I haven't had a drink since. So you're absolutely right. That was scared you sober. That it's like you had some angels around you. Oh yes. Yes. And, and, so it's that moment that I, that I call, I was standing at the intersection of desperation and grace because I was clearly desperate. I was in so much pain and there is absolutely no reason except for divine intervention, angels, whatever you want to deem that as being the only reason why I'm here. So what a turning point. And were you able to accomplish this on your own? Just cold turkey, stop drinking? Or did you have to have help? I I went, I went to AA and it was devastating that I, that I was telling myself the story I told myself was that this is devastating, that, that it's come to this. It's like humiliating, right? Oh, I was. Yeah, I I don't need to go to this, but now you need to go. That it came to that, you mm. know, that it, mm-hmm. that it that's what it was going to take, and it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, so you just had you just knew you you needed help. You knew you needed yeah. help, or were you getting pressure to get help? No, I wasn't under any pressure to get help because my husband okay. was my drinking buddy. Okay, so we were going happily along until I until I went off the deep end and. And the other thing is, is that I have this diagnosis of clinical depression. And so you're, you've got a depressive mental illness, right? And you're taking antidepressants and then you're you're drinking and you're all over them, which negates the, the help that the antidepressants are giving you. And so an alcohol is a depressant, right? So no wonder that I, that it, took the toll on me that it did because it's like a the, double double whammy because of the depressive nature of it so yeah. but I had a neighbor who was in recovery and she knew that I had a problem I mean she we used to walk the dogs together and she would leave me these little breadcrumbs out getting sober and I was like well I'm not ready and and she always yeah said, it's not that bad I'm fine yeah, yeah. And she always said, well, you know who to, who to call when you're ready. I'll, I'll be here for you. And so she's who I called the next day. And she took me to my first couple of AA meetings. And that was really hard to do. And like I said, I mean, they saved my life. AA saved my life. And it's not for everybody. It's, it's a program of recovery that not everyone is willing to embrace and, and that's okay. 
There are a lot of ways to stop drinking, to look at your relationship with alcohol, to get help. And AA is one of them. And they're one of the best. I mean, they've been around for, uh, you know, since the 1930s. So almost a hundred years for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's a, they saved my life and they save a lot of lives. You get sober and then. So I got, years, yeah. yep, I got sober. I worked really hard on my recovery for like a year. I mean, I, you know, I was going to meetings every day. I was working really hard on it. And then I, it became very clear that I needed to not be self-employed anymore and get a real job. And so, so I got myself a really good job and with a really good company. And was that because you needed the structure of it or just, I think, I think it was, I think I needed the structure. I think I needed to have these visions of grandeur, I think when I had been drinking and I think I thought life should be one way and it didn't turn out that way. And I kind of surrendered. That's a good word. And my husband said, I think you need to think about getting a job. And I said, I think you're right. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking and I had been in the oil and gas business years before. And so I started looking in that industry again and found a great job with a great company. And I was delighted to be hired and Ultimately, I made really good living and things were going really quite well. And when I turned 58 on my 58th birthday, I woke up from a hysterectomy and was told that I had stage 1C ovarian cancer. Oh, yikes. And that's interesting. That's, a, that's an interesting word, cancer, because everybody's so afraid of it. Mm-hmm. And that I think a lot of people feel like it's the worst thing that could ever happen to them. Mm -hmm. I was very lucky that I was diagnosed early stage ovarian cancer because it's a silent killer. Right. A lot of times it's not detected until it's too late. Right. And I was very, very lucky. And I, my feeling for me is that it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it changed my perspective on life. And after I got through treatment and as I was carrying on with my life as it had been, I became more and more disillusioned with the work I was doing and just kind of how my life was going. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't buy into that storyline anymore. I, I just, it didn't, resonate with me. It didn't, it didn't match my values. And so was it, it, the type of work you were doing, is that what well, it was? Yeah. It, well, I, yeah, I was doing, I was doing a lot of what felt like very mundane work. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't really, but it was, it felt that way. It was tedious and lots of paperwork and it just didn't, well, as I said, it didn't feed my soul. Yeah. I wanted something that was going to feed my soul. Mm -hmm. And so I had stumbled across Martha Beck, who was a Harvard educated 
psychologist or soci sociologist, I guess. And she's, she's quite amazing and found out, I went to a workshop that she conducted and I found out about her life coaching program. And I had been working with a life coach and I thought, this is fascinating work. I want to learn how to do this. And so I enrolled in Martha's program and that led to me becoming not only certified in that, but then I was led to Equus coaching through the same people who were with associated with Martha Beck were also associated with Equus coaching. And so I went through that program. And so I'm a certified Equus coach, which is using horses as coaches. I was going to say, because it's Equus, equine had yep. me thinking that had to have been specific with horses. Yep. And, and now I'm in their master facilitator program so that I can do workshops and retreats. And now, now, did you have horses? That's the funny thing about it. You know, <laughs> didn't yeah. grow, I didn't grow up with horses. I didn't can count on probably one hand, how many trail rides I've been on in my life. Mm -hmm. And, but there's always been something about horses that I was drawn to. I couldn't tell you really what that was, except that there's a part of me that knew they were magic, I think. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. So I had an experience in 2017, I think it was when I was on a, a work conference in Santa Fe and I signed up for an Equus session and it was magic. This horse convinced me that I was beautiful and that I was loved and that I was enough. And just by looking in my eyes and I could feel her looking into my soul. Oh, I love that. And then I had an opportunity the next year to go to a women's retreat in Tucson. And I did that. And that horse, I worked with several horses, but I worked with one that was a draft mare that's, she's huge. I'm five foot tall and I was dwarfed. By <laughs> she gave me some powerful messages. And then the following weekend, I was at my life coach training, a conference, and I had an opportunity to do another Equus workshop and that horse gave me the same message that the horse the weekend before gave me. And so I determined that these horses are in fact magic, magical, and I had to learn how to work with them. I just, I just was drawn and compelled and working with horses is, it's an incredible experience. It's, you can have this rapid visceral change you can feel it in your soul and you can feel it in your spirit it's like you go in there with a horse and because of how they are so intuitive they they mirror back to you what you're putting out into the world mm -hmm. and so it's just it's very <laughs> it's so hard to describe right yeah but it is it feels like magic when you're in, when you're working with a horse and you land on your truth and the horse affirms that with you by a nudge or just the feeling you get when they look at you, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's profound and it's yeah. something that 
you can't get really any other way in that that quickly. It's instantaneous. Yeah, I find it fascinating. Can you give any like concrete examples of experiences maybe a client has had that with working with you and and the horse that's you know just some examples of some things so one day I was working with a client and and actually yesterday I was working with the same client we kind of had the same thing happen but um so she had had uh a a dream I think she said it was um and this was some time ago, it wasn't, wasn't a, a recent dream, but it kind of was a recurring sort of thing where she felt like, you know, she was disconnected from others. And, and she said it was like she had a wall in between her and the rest of the world. And it was, uh, you know, at the time that we talked, the wall was kind of up to her eye level, you know, so it was, um, it was kind of like she could see over the top of the wall, but that was about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so as we were working together and she was telling me about this, I was in the round pen with her and the horse kept walking in between the two of us. <laughs> it was at the wall. <laughs> the horse decided to be the wall. Mm -hmm. And no matter how we moved around him, he would come between us. That is fascinating. And so, you know, the question was, how is what's happening here relating to what you're talking about? And how does it make you feel? Mm -hmm. Right. And it was like frustrated mm -hmm. and protected at the same time. Oh, yeah. Oh, protected. Yeah. Because that's what she, what was happening was she was this wall was protecting her heart. So yesterday we worked together, and it's been it's been a while since we worked together. Probably eh, not quite a year, but close to a year. And that horse, different horse, different facility, did the same thing. And when we were working together before, she was starting to break down the wall to allow herself to be vulnerable and connect. And then some life things have happened and kind of brought that wall back up so that it was chest level, but it was still, still there, her heart, right? Her, mm -hmm. Protecting her heart. And so the horse was doing the same thing. He would really interact with her. He would stand there and allow her to pet him and get the comfort from him that he was giving and yet then he would shift and come between us to probably protect and to keep her slightly off to to keep her from being hurt from having to look too hard and so it was fascinating mm -hmm. it was fascinating and then as we were kind of wrapping up she was trying to sort of make a decision about, well, I could go one way and do this, or I could go this other way and choose a different solution. And the horse started shifting his weight 
<laughs> so he was mimicking her indecision. Yeah. And, and at the same time, I was kind of doing the same thing yeah. <laughs> on the outside. So I couldn't tell if he was, if he was mirroring me mm-hmm. or if we both were mirroring her indecision. So it was really fascinating to see what the, what the relationship of the three of us were. Because that horse was mimicking something. He was mirroring one of us. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if I was mirroring her or, but it, it was fascinating. And I have never seen a horse do that. Huh. So just, wow. <laughs> that is fascinating. Yeah. So are these, are these your own horses? No, they are. They all belong to someone else. I work out of a, a few different facilities and these horses are just fulfilling my dreams. <laughs> certainly. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm just wondering, are they specifically therapy, therapy horses or? No, not necessarily. The horses that we, that I worked with yesterday, they are at a facility here in Denver that is used primarily as a therapeutic center. So mm-hmm. a lot of kids are there with disabilities and they work a lot with folks that have trauma of some sort. Yeah, I was, I was just wondering, it's like, how did, because if you're doing this kind of work, did you need special kinds of horses or horses that you've bonded with or? If they're sensitive and most horses are very sensitive because they're prey animals. And so they have to be sensitive in order to survive Mm -hmm. out in the wild. And so that's part of their nature and their DNA. And so they're always on alert to danger and they're very aware of their surroundings And the thing that is so magnificent about horses and why they're so great to work with is because of this sensitivity and their intuitive nature. So they, they can tell if you're not being authentic and it's all on an energetic level. So Mm -hmm. they know if you're bullshitting yourself, basically. Yeah. So if you're bullshitting yourself, then they can sense that your energy isn't isn't aligned. Mm -hmm. So they won't trust you because of that. And so they won't interact. But as soon as you land on your truth, like I said earlier, when you land on your truth, then your body instinctively relaxes kind of right. So when you relax, then that energy, the horse picks up on that energy, that relaxed energy, that authentic energy. And then they get curious, like, oh, what's going on over there? So then they want to interact because now they're curious about what happened to shift that energy and they want to investigate it. No, they're curious. (laughs) They're very, very curious. And so then they'll interact. It's, it's magic. I mean, it just, it feels like magic when I'm working with a client and a horse or, or me and a horse, you know, it's Uh just because they, they pick up on everything. It's just the most, it's the most fun experience and profoundly transformative. Mm. Well, cause you're getting feedback. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The feedback is just, like I yeah. said, it can be instantaneous. So. so how long have you been doing the Equus coaching? So I got my, I, I started training in 2019. Okay. So I've, I got my certification in for Equus coaching in 2000. And, and I hope to have my master facilitator by the end of this year. So, yeah. So tell us about 
the work that you do with women that want to stop drinking or control their drinking? So before I got sober, so probably for the 10 years or so before I got sober, I knew I was drinking too much, but everyone around me was drinking pretty much the way I was drinking. Mm -hmm. And it felt like too much of a leap to quit. I didn't want to quit, Mm -hmm. but I, I also was really curious and now they have a term for that. It's called sober curious. And there's a big sober curious movement about around people who wonder what it would be like to actually go alcohol free. And there's, there've been a lot of changes in, in the recovery arena since before I got sober. And one of the things that they've come up with is gray area drinking, which is this abusive area, right? Before it becomes alcohol use disorder or alcoholism. So did you call it gray? Is that what you said? Gray area? Yep. So it's like, it's not, you're not, you're not a normal drinker and you're not an alcoholic. It's kind of that gray area, right? You're Mm -hmm. abusing it. It's having an effect on your life, a negative effect on your life. And you're not ready to give it up. Mm -hmm. You know, you're in that grayness, (laughs) gray area. Yeah, I see that. And so And now there's another term for alcoholism, which is alcohol use disorder. And, and I kind of, I like that because it's not a label. There's a lot of labeling that goes on with the term alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Um, It sounds so negative and so bad. And I like to think of it as a, as an affliction and addiction rather than a, a label. So I, I kind of digress there, but what I needed when I was over drinking a lot, but before I hit my, before I kind of went off the rails and drank extremely heavily for two years, because I felt so guilty about my dad's death. I really wanted somebody to talk to that knew what I was talking about, but wasn't going to say, okay, well, you've got to stop drinking. Cause I think that's one of the things that people are afraid of is that somebody's going to tell them, well, you got to stop. Yeah, that's, that's the only option. And it may be the only option that makes sense. But one of the things is that we all kind of have to come to that point for ourselves. Yeah. And being told by someone that you have to stop drinking or doing anything that is causing you pain and suffering that, that you're addicted to is, that's a hard pill to swallow. Right. So, so you need to come by it for yourself. And one of the best ways to do that is through coaching. I had had someone like me in my life back then. I don't think I would have ever gotten to the point where I put a gun to my head. Mm -hmm. I think I probably would have determined on my own that I should stop drinking. Yeah. And then to have the support of your coach. Right. As you go on that journey. Right. I don't think it would have been the traumatic event that it turned out to be. Yeah. Now that's not to say that that's happened exactly the way it was supposed to happen, perhaps, and perhaps not, but it's the, the way it happened is the way that it did happen. And I wouldn't, I feel like my mission is to help women who feel the same way I did that. I wonder if there's another way that there is another way. 
-hmm. and that it doesn't have to make you feel shameful or embarrassed or devastated in order to take a look at it. Just it's being willing to take a look at yourself. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I know to be true and that I learned from coaching is that as a coach, I'm not going to tell my clients anything that they don't already know deep down inside. I'm going to just help them listen to their inner wisdom and learn how to be open for themselves and live their life the best way they can and how they were meant to, right? Instead of numbing themselves out so that they can function, Mm -hmm. right? So that they can think they can function. Yeah. It's so interesting to me because you know, I do weight loss coaching and nutrition coaching and you know, some of the, some of the programs that we offer don't allow for alcohol. It's like, you want to lose a weight? You really can't drink for a variety of reasons. Uh, it's, chemical. I can't tell you how many people that is the biggest roadblock. They're like, yeah, no, <laughs> I got to have my wine. I got to have my my alcohol. We, uh, we also, where I live is an area in wine country and there's wineries on every corner. And so it, the culture has changed so much that now what do you do on the weekends? You go to the winery and you, people bring their children and their babies and they drink and it's, it's a social thing. And it, oh, it's really challenging for people. They're yeah, because I'm like, okay, I know you like to drink and you can drink, but can we just not drink for a certain period of time so we can help you lose the weight because alcohol has a lot of calories. <laughs> and it for some people, they're great. They're like, yep, no problem. But there's a lot that just, it, right. yeah, it's that gray, <laughs> that gray area. That's- right. And so those are, those are my people, right? So mm-hmm. the question I want to ask them is why is there such a resistance there? Yeah. Right. Yeah. What is it? Is it the social? Is it the way it makes you feel? Is it, what is it? Right. Why does this scare you so much? And. Oh, I like that. Why does it scare you so much? That's a really profound question. Our culture promotes it. Mm -hmm. You can't get away from it. And the alcohol companies, the wineries, the hard liquor companies, everyone that's in the liquor business is convincing us that we can't have a good time unless we have a drink in our hand. Mm-hmm. They're also convincing us that we can't get through a tough time without a drink in our hand. Yeah. And they are really targeting women and they're targeting young women. Mm. You know, they're targeting young mothers. I bet in all of those wineries, they all have a wine tasting room and they probably have a gift shop attached to them. And I would wager that every one of them has tea towels or glassware or travel mugs that say something like mommy sippy cup. Yes, 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 yes. You're so right. You'd drink too if you were my mommy. Mm -hmm. This is mommy's. I know what you're saying. Whatever. I mean, yeah, it's, that's so true. And I, I mean, when I had my babies, we didn't go anywhere. We didn't go anywhere to drink. And certainly if you did, you got a babysitter, let the kids home. But and it amazes me when I go and it's the baby in the stroller or baby, baby, newborns. It's really something. Yeah. Wow. Well, so Nancy, if someone 
would like to work with you, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you or how would they work with you? The best way is to just get on my website, which is amazingoutlookcoaching.com and just have a peek around and see, see if what's on my website is appealing or not. But I, my passion is to help women who were like me before I had to go down the road I went down. Is your, is your coaching specific to this or do you do other kinds of life coaching as well? I, I do. I just want to help people. Right. So mm-hmm. I work with people who, women who are over drinking because that's just a kind of a natural for me. Mm-hmm. You know, women with cancer is also a natural for me, but I've had lots of clients who worked with me because their career was not going where they wanted it to go or their relationship wasn't going where they wanted it to go or for any number of reasons. So my website is pretty specific to drinking, but I really, really respect what you're offering because as you said, the idea of AA can be too much. If, if someone's in the gray, Mm -hmm. they know they kind of have this feeling something's not right and probably too much, but what are the options? Right. You think it's all or nothing. It's this, Yeah. And the shame and the stigma of how, how in the world are you going to explain all of a sudden to your family and your friends, you're going to AA. It just sounds so, oof. yeah. So, and I think you have something on your website, like a quiz or a, a form. A, yeah. I have a guide on how to assess your relationship with alcohol and that's right there on my website. So you can certainly request that. And, uh, and then I also have a Facebook group, women and alcohol that I'd love to have people in there and we engage and chat about all things that are confounding all of us. And just because I'm the coach doesn't mean I am, I'm still human and still have all the feel, all the feels. So we all get through it together. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with on this topic? Oh gosh, probably, you know, you don't have to do it alone and you, and you shouldn't really do it alone. So much harder to do it alone. I think we put so much pressure on ourselves to do things right. Yeah. And that's really hard. And it's not nearly as much fun as when you are sharing the experience with someone. And I admire the bravery and the, and the courage that it takes to admit that I'm struggling with this and I'd like to have some help. You don't have to struggle alone. That's for sure. And if you're in the Denver area, then you could oh, work with you yeah. with, and the horses. Come play with me and the horses. Yes, I absolutely. know. I was just in Denver uh, in June. My son graduated from college out there. And boy, I wish I'd known you sooner. Oh, I would have come yes. out to visit you. Oh my gosh. Well, there's the airplanes are still flying. So yes, they are. <laughs> and uh, hopefully first quarter of 2023, I'll be running a, a retreat. In Arizona, that's always an option as well. Yeah. Well, good to know. And I'm sure all that'll be on your website or out there. Yeah. Awesome. Well, gosh, Nancy, this has been a really interesting, very informative and enlightening conversation. And I'm so glad you, you were here and you shared this perspective because I think it could really help a lot of people. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I, and I hope it does. I hope that your listeners have gotten a nugget or two out of, out of it and that they know that they're not alone. And that's that's the most important thing is once we feel like we're not in the boat all by ourselves, then, then that just helps. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And listeners, I will be posting all of this in the show notes. So you'll be able to find Nancy and go on this journey with her if it is something that is calling to you. So again, Nancy, I just want to say thank you very much for sharing all this with us. Well, thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on Unbreakable Spirit. To learn more about Jennifer and her holistic weight loss approach, visit her website at sevencompany.com. That's the number seven, company.com. And please join us for our next episode, where we'll hear from more women who overcame hardship and learned how to thrive.